Well, good morning again. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, as we continue to consider this passage in verse 18, and we'll be reaching back again today, as we have for the last couple of weeks, into the book of Genesis. Uh, we've looked at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and today we'll look at Genesis chapter 3 as we conclude our excursion into the Old Testament, into the foundations for what Paul is teaching in verse 18. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for this day. We pray that you would um, quicken our hearts and minds this morning to hear the word and to understand it. Um, give us the ability to comprehend that which you've written for us to understand. Um, we are exhorted in scripture to worship you with our minds. And so we ask, Lord, that you would enable us to do that today through the presence of your spirit May he work mightily in us, and may the word go out with power and force. We pray, Lord, that you would um, guard us and protect us from the attacks of the evil one, uh, the buffeting, the temptations that come. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us and preserve us, and we rejoice that nothing can separate us from your love. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for all the provisions that you have made and the blessings you have bestowed. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, of course, has become a familiar passage to us. And uh, verse 18, of course, is something that we've been focusing on, a passage that we have taken the time to carefully unpackage and to deal with um, a lot of the issues that are attendant with it, both in terms of its meaning and those who would disparage it. And oftentimes, those who would take away from it or diminish its significance don't understand the reason it's there or why Paul would exhort uh, the wives in this manner. And our time here in this passage is not intended to indicate that I perceive there to be a serious problem um, in the church with the women. Um, some are even buying whoopie pies for their husbands now, I've heard. And, and, and this is a great ex encouragement to me uh, because apparently the word of the Lord is working mightily in, in the hearts of some. And and, 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 and this particular husband, of course, is grinning ear to ear, and it even came with a love note. So I, um, uh, I just um, am in shock and, and, and I'm grateful to the Lord for this. So pra praise the Lord, Marilyn. Uh, <laughs> the, the Lord is at work, yes, indeed. Very good. So, well, husbands, your day is coming, and so, you know, Danny, your, your time's coming, too, so we'll see what you buy. <laughs> uh, so, we'll be moving into verse 19, uh, uh, Lord willing, most likely next Sunday. So, let's read, let's look at Colossians chapter 3. It's important that we go back to verse 12 because it serves as the foundation for what Paul then communicates in terms of these gospel imperatives, if you will the things that flow out of a transformed heart, how Christians behave and act because they are grateful for what the Lord has done. And it also stands because of it's, it's something that is, is necessary or axiomatic. It necessarily flows out of being a Christian um, as he communicates in verse 12 because this is what Christians do. And God has elected and chosen us to be different kinds of people. We are born again. We are new creation in Christ Jesus. We have been united to Christ. And so as a consequence of that, we live in a different way. We live, we think, we act, we speak. 
we conduct ourselves in the church and with each other differently because of what Christ has done. That's very, very important. And you do it out of gratitude, not begrudgingly. So verse 12, chapter 3, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And so we have this, that foundation that's laid there, and we step into this, this new creational lifestyle that Paul then begins with in the family, in the relationship between the husband and the wife. And so verse 18, we see, Wives, be subject to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. And so we want to make certain that as we step into this particular passage, as it relates to the relationship between a husband and a wife, that we have the biblical foundation properly laid to understand why it is that Paul would exhort the wives in this manner and why he would then exhort the husbands in the way that he does in verse 19. And so for both the husband and the wife, it's important that we understand and comprehend what it is that God intended a marriage to look like. That matters. It matters immensely, and it ought to matter to you. It ought to matter to you more than, than, than what others have to say about it. Um, in the modern context, we have all sorts of people speaking into the issue of marriages and relationships and what they ought to be and what they ought not to be and whether they should exist at all. But ultimately, we need to go back to God's word because that is the sure foundation for what we believe. We accept the word as truth. We rely upon that. It's objective. It's fixed and it's firm. It's the arbiter of all that we do in faith and practice. And so we understand that verse 18 is based upon something that God has ordained that was good and proper. And we find that in Genesis chapter 1. Let's go back in chapter 2 and chapter 3. We'll be spending the rest of this morning there looking at chapter 3 in particular in certain passages out of that particular chapter. Up to this point, we've been taking into consideration God's creative design and mandate. It is important that we understand the issue of God's creative mandate. God created the man to perform a particular task. He designed him and fashioned him and created him in a particular way, and he did the same with the woman. And there was a particular role that each one would fill. We know from Genesis chapter 1 that he created the male and female. We understand that Adam is the head of the human race, and, and, and based upon that, there is authority, and there is, pri there is a primary responsibility that flows out of that. Last week, we considered from chapter 2 that God made Adam the central character, and we see the repeated emphasis on what Adam was to do, and what he was called to be, and the charge that was issued to him. We understand from chapter 2 that God created Adam first, so he's the primary leader. He is the first created. 
God, we all understand from the third point from chapter two that God formed the woman out of the man. And we took the time to understand the significance and meaning of that and the, and the, and the magnitude of that, if you will. The fourth point we considered from chapter two is that God created the woman for the man. And what we have then is a, a beginning issue of the statement of the role of each. We see that God gave each a very specific role. He did for Adam as it relates to the authority over the earth and the, and, and the, and the leadership and the context of that. Something that Adam ultimately gave up and gave away when he, when he didn't stop the serpent from tempting his wife. The fifth point that we considered is that God gave the man the right to name the woman. We saw that in the context of, of, of the creative order and design. We'll see that again today in chapter 3, verse 20. We see something there that is really quite beautiful and magnificent. I'm excited to get to that portion of that particular point of Scripture. And the sixth point that we made is, and from chapter 2 is that God created the man and woman equal in nature. So, we then understand that from God's perspective, perspective, contrary to what the world has to say, is that women aren't less or created differently in the context of their nature. They are equal in nature. But Adam and Eve's roles were different, and each was uniquely designed to fulfill their roles. Adam was given responsibilities that would require strength and, and endurance and certain abilities physically. Adam was made completely different from Eve in that context. And so we see a difference in role and God uniquely designing and fitting each one to fulfill that role. Emotionally, they were different. Men are not women emotionally, although today it seems that they are. More men respond to things emotionally as opposed to how God would have intended them to respond. And, and women often do the same in the context of their emotions. We see the impact of the fall on that. And so we want to make certain, friends, as we are going into these passages, that we come away with a very distinct sense that God had a creative order that he wants to be followed, that he requires to be followed, and that he uniquely designed and equipped each of us to do what he designed us to do. There's no shame in that. There's no reason that we should walk away from it. There's no reason to be embarrassed about it. But sadly, many Christians today look askance at these passages and ignore them. We have many who diminish it completely. It's a mere fable. It's a fairy tale. It's, it's nothing more than some poetic narrative. We have others who dismiss it as being out of step with the modern age. It's antiquated. It's old. It's, it's nothing that's of any import or application to a modern culture that's so advanced as ours. For Pete's sake, we have iPhones. This can't be the case. Well, We've, we can find that God's word is true for all ages, and once we begin to live in the context of this, it's very important for us to see that God will bless and preserve as he intended. So Paul, of course, is building on all this, and today in chapter 3, we're going to be considering, um, again, what, what is important for us to understand in terms of the foundation, the mandate, the relationship, as it relates to the husband and the wife. Now, what we understand certainly is that what God intended and what God designed is ultimately impacted and corrupted by sin. And so the fall has a profound impact on the relationship between a husband and a wife. 
And what we ultimately see here today in chapter 3 are the consequences of that. We know from Genesis chapter 3 that the man and the woman sin against God. They disobey God's command and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Their disobedience and its resulting judgment is called the fall. Now, that's important. That's, that's a huge deal. You get that issue wrong, you've got all kinds of problems coming. The, the Bible won't make a lick of sense, nor will the life and work of Jesus Christ make any sense to you. Without the fall, without understanding the totality of the fall, the completeness of the fall, understanding what happened in the fall, you get a lot of things wrong. And we find that in the fall, Adam sinned, and as Adam is the federal head, he's the man, all of his progeny are now captured and bound in that act and in the consequences of that act. And it impacts Eve as well, and we see that it impacts their relationship. Immediately, it begins to impact the relationship between the husband and the wife. And it ultimately, it ultimately changes, as we'll see too, the relationship between the husband and the wife in terms of this idea of submission that Paul speaks to in, Gen in Colossians 3.18. So their disobedience and the resulting judgment is referred theologically to as the fall. Don't forget that. That's important. Genesis chapter 3 explains why men and women labor in toil, agony, and conflict all their days, and why they die. The consequence, the wages of sin is death, and we see that. And this is how it was brought into the world. Sin has wrought this dilemma, and nothing short of the removal of sin will end it. And so all parties in the debate that is attendant with the issue of the roles of men and women um, uh, will ultimately have to agree that the fall has changed the relationship between the man and the woman and its, and its intended design. So let's read what is pertinent to this particular passage. Let's read Genesis chapter 3. We'll read through verse uh, 20. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which, God, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. So, so what we have here is the first false teacher of Scripture. He's taking God's word and he's twisting it. That's what false teachers do. And so you have our first false teacher. That's significant. And we're all throughout, throughout the balance of Scripture, we're going to be warned about what? false teachers. So right out of the gate, we've got one. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree of which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? 
And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. The word enmity means a state of fixed hostility. That word is used by Paul in Romans to describe man's relationship with God in his natural state. We are at enmity with God. That is a consequence of the fall. We need to understand that because that issue of enmity, that state of fixed hostility, has to be resolved. It must be rectified in some manner, and it is God who ultimately does that. We know that from our study in Colossians. So back to verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is referred to as the proto-gospel, the, the, the first indications of the fact that you're going to need a substitute in the context of resolving the problems now attendant with the fall, with this issue of enmity and death. So we have the gospel, Genesis 3.15, right out of the gate. To the woman, he said, verse 16, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. So we're seeing now the consequences of sin and God's judgment, the resulting condemnation and judgment that comes out of disobedience. There is a consequence to that, and this is what we're seeing here. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I have much more to say about that because it has a significant impact on how we understand verse 18. Then, at, then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So we see here then um, some important issues being played out. The, the, the important verses in particular are, are verse 1, verse 6, verse 9, verse 16, verse 17, verse 19, and 20. And, and those will really be the focus of <clears throat> our assessment of the passage. So many who look at this passage, um, those within certain feminist arenas and, and mindsets, insist that this is the first time here in Genesis 3, this is the first historical introduction of the concept of headship and submission. What they want to do is cast aspersions on headship and submission by making the, the consequence of sin, and that this was a, a, a fail-safe or a fallback position as it relates to what God intended and what, what came out of this particular event. Ultimately, they argue that Genesis chapter 2 teaches full equality of the sexes, not headship and submission. Indeed, many say one of the leading spokespersons of this particular position says that it is only the result of the fall, that is Genesis 3.16, that the woman becomes subordinate to man. There is not even a hint in the narrative of Genesis, of Genesis that woman is in any way subordinate to man prior to the fall, which we know is not the case in the context of the roles that God designed and how he placed them. And of course, we disagree with that. 
We see in Genesis chapter 2, and as we've already discussed, that uh, the, the relationship, the intended relationship between the husband and the wife, between a man and a woman, was corrupted by the fall. But it wasn't altered in the context of the roles that they would play in the principles of headship and submission as we have discussed. And it's important for you to be mindful of that. Pay attention to the argument and pay attention to the attack and the angle that is taken. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 3, we can take away three important points that we want to be mindful of. The first point regards Eve's deception. Eve's deception. It was not by chance, importantly, that Satan appealed first to the woman rather than to the man. That's significant. There was a reason as it relates to Satan's attack and temptation first on Eve as opposed to Adam. Like all master deceivers, Satan looked for the best way to sell his lies. Knowing God's creation design for the two sexes, he realized that the woman would be more susceptible of the two to his subtle deceptions, and he was right. He was right. Again, bearing in mind, too, that God made the man and the woman differently, and he made them differently in terms of their, of their emotional makeup. And there was certainly something about the woman that was noticed in the context of being susceptible to the overtures that he would make. And in verse 13, the woman uh, herself admits to God that Satan deceived her, that she was deceived. So Satan struck at the woman first, attacking not only what God had said about the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, but also attacking God's order for the couple's relationship, usurping. See, he didn't go to Adam first as the head. He went to Eve. He understood what God intended. He understood what God designed. And he understood that he could tempt Eve in the context of usurping Adam's leadership and headship role. And this is what he did. This is quite intriguing. So he goes to her and he engages her in this argument as it relates to uh, what God had ordained and what God had said. And he's even attacking the dynamic of the relationship. So there are two things going on there. There is the overt expression of the statements that he is making that are incorrect. They're subtly distinct and different from what God actually said. But he's also attacking God on the basis of going to Eve rather than to Adam. That's significant. And I think we have to keep that in mind as it relates to the, the, the emotional makeup and the responsibilities and the roles, even in the home today. Guys, you're responsible in your home for leading your wife spiritually. Your, your obligation is to make certain that you are, are well-equipped to deal with the things of God, to, to engage her in those things and to assist her in those things. It doesn't mean that they're less smart or, or ignorant of certain things, but there's an emotional difference and there's a makeup that can, that can be an issue re relative to how certain things are responded to. If you want to know, just look at the way women's ministries are done today. That will tell you. They are emotionally driven, and they're driven to appeal to a certain mindset and frame of mind as it relates to the emotional makeup of women. What's interesting to me today is that more and more of, of men's ministries and the, the, the communication of things to men in the context of the church is looking more and more like what women's ministries look like. Emotional, sensitive, your feelings, things of that nature. That's wrong, and it's a problem. 
And so, and I think it's also why we see an a avalanche of women preachers, too, um, in terms of, of that whole problem. But Adam, or rather Eve, frankly admits to God that Satan deceived her. She was deceived. So Satan struck at the woman first, attacking not only what God had said about the tree, but also attacking God's order for the couple's relationship. She the helper, he the leader. That's clearly what God ordained. There's no need, reason to be offended by it. You don't need to be upset about it, but that's what God ordered, and that's what God ordained. And Satan attacked that. He went to her first, not Adam. It's interesting, one theologian insightfully remarked, the fall is therefore not only the rebellion of mankind against God, but the setting aside of the divinely appointed order of male and female. Now, now please hear me about this. The fall is therefore not only the rebellion of mankind against God, but the setting aside of the divinely appointed order of male and female. God created a, a mandate, a structure, an order, a, a relationship dynamic that he intended to remain intact. It is the consequences of the fall that that order, and again, it is an order, has been altered has been shifted, and this is where the problems come into play. As we noted, Paul's exhortation in Colossians 3.18 comes out of what we find in Genesis chapter 2. All the exhortations that we find in the New Testament relate back to the creative order and the roles and responsibilities within that relationship. They, they rest on Genesis chapter 2. Paul does it repeatedly, Peter does it, they hearken back, Christ does it, they hearken back to what was done in this particular segment of Scripture and at this time. And so we see that Eve's deception is something that is significant. We then look at Eve's penalty. What was the penalty for Eve relative to what transpired here um, between her and, um, her and Satan? As a result of her sin, Eve would be afflicted with pain in her, in her chief roles as mother and wife. There is an impact on both dynamics. Look at verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And so, so we see that there's a consequence in, the, in relationship to uh, her role as both the mother and the wife. And clearly being a mom is important and is, is a role that's well-defined in Scripture for, for a woman in the context of a relationship in the family. So the first part of Eve's penalty for her transgression relates to her role as a mom. We see that. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, in pain you shall bring forth children. I, I don't think that that needs a ton of explanation. Life speaks for itself. And I think that also speaks not only to the context of, of the physical nature of childbirth itself, but there's things that are attendant with raising children that go well beyond just giving birth to them. We see the effect of sin on our children. We, we see the effect of the fall on our children and the pain and, and, the, and the angst and the, and the anxiety that we experience in attempting to raise children. They're impacted by the fall. 
and, and this pain that's associated, and, and, and many commentators extend this into the arena of the idea of the emotional turmoil that is often attendant with raising children. Have any of you experienced that? Can I see a hand out there? Amen. Uh, we'll put you in the book. Um, but that's certainly a part of it. I mean, even, we even read this morning out of Samuel, we, you know, we, there was reference to Eli's two bad boys that we find out later are a train wreck. So no one was spared ultimately from this because why? Children are what? Sinners. Sometimes they sin small, sometimes they sin big. Seems more often than not, it's big. And it's problematic and it tears our hearts out, doesn't it? It really does. It hurts. It hurts deep. And we see that this is certainly something that would be attendant with. Certainly the physical aspect is there. Uh, we, we, we know that that can be very difficult. Women have died giving birth. It was more common in the past than it is now, but it was certainly a great risk for a woman to become pregnant. And we know throughout history repeated accounts of, of the agonies of birth and the, and the problems that were associated with it. By God's great mercy and grace, that has been minimized to some extent through a variety of different things. But certainly we understand the particular curse and the aspect of it. The second part of Eve's penalty is really quite intriguing. It relates to her marital relationship. It says that your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Um, these, this pronouncement in general terms initiate what we call today the battle of the sexes. And this is a consequence of sin. It's interesting that prior to the fall, there's nothing that would indicate that there was a strain between Adam and Eve as it relates to their roles. They were in the garden. There was harmony. The consequence of the fall and the falling into sin is to, to create disharmony, to create discord in what God intended to be harmonious. So, so men and women alike, think about that for a minute. When there is a strain between the two of you, and this happens, it is attendant with the fall. It is a consequence of the fall. That harmony that God intended has been corrupted by the fall. It's not what God intended or designed. When you have conflict within a marriage, when there's the battle, as we noted, of the sexes, that is the consequence of the fall. That is not God's creative order. So sin has come in and has corrupted what God intended to be perfect and right and pure and holy and good. When God created Adam and Eve in the context that he did and he placed them in their respective order and their roles, it was good in his eyes, as was all of his creation. So bear in mind that when Paul says to you in Colossians 3.18 that you are to submit to your husband as in the Lord, he is hearkening back to the idea that in God's creative design, this is exactly what he intended because it is good. So what is in verse 18 is good. Husbands, what is in verse 19 is good. And, and you've got a lot to do in verse 19. Ladies, their day is coming. That half-hour message is going to be so packed with things that you won't believe it. So don't forget this. So, what, what does this mean? What are we talking about when, when we look at verse 16 
um, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Well, there's, there's a lot that can be said about that. And, and I, there's some important things to note as well. Um, I'll share with you something that Calvin said, which I thought was quite insightful. He said this regarding verse 16. He says, the idea that is being communicated here is that Eve would not be free and at her own command, but subject to the authority of her husband and dependent upon his will, or as if he said, thou shalt not desire nothing but what thy husband wishes. That's significant. Another way of saying it, unto thee shall be his desire and not your own. Thus the woman, who had perversely exceeded her proper bounds is forced back to her own position. She had indeed previously been subject to her husband, but that was liberal and gentle submission. Now, however, she is cast into a framework of submission tainted by sin. Calvin would even call it servitude. This is significant. And so when, when this, this language in verse 16 speaks to the idea of, of the, 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 the woman in the context of dependence. Now what has happened is that where there was harmony in re- relationship to the, um, uh, the relationship between Adam and Eve, there is now this kind of, of, of force imposed by God in relationship between the man and the woman where she is now mandated, required in a more dramatic way, not liberal and gracious as Calvin would note, which I think is good, but as a directive and and a command, as a consequence of sin. So we see the difference there. And so we find then that that relationship between a husband and a wife is now tainted by sin, and there's going to be this force working against it, which is sin. Isn't sin always working against us? Isn't sin always pushing us in the opposite direction of where we ought to go? Isn't that the consequence of it? We're tempted, are we not? We're tempted as husbands to not do what we ought to do in our homes. We're tempted to not lead. We're tempted to be lazy. We're tempted to be complacent. We're tempted to give over our responsibilities to our wives. We're tempted to ignore our obligations. We're tempted to murmur and complain about them. We're tempted to become more effeminate in the way that we conduct ourselves and in the manners in which we live, which I think is an affront. And for the woman, the temptation is to continue in Eve's pattern, isn't it? Eve established a pattern. She then becomes the arbiter in the minds of many as to what is correct. I'm going to do it. I'm going to assert my rights. I'm going to be the one who commands and directs and leads. So what what does God say? Now, rather than living in the context of graciousness, in this dynamic, now let's, let's remember something though too, in this dynamic, this is what this ultimately looks like. But remember, in Colossians 3.18, we are now looking at a marriage that is impacted by the gospel the gospel. And so the gospel softens this in the context of changing the heart, creating a new heart, new nature, union with Christ, and a sense of gratitude for what Christ has done, thereby making our obedience to these commands more joyful and pleasant. More along what God intended. That's the consequence of the gospel. But we certainly see here that there's something at play relative to 
the relationship between the husband and the wife. Paul, God specifically speaks to it. He, he doesn't ignore it. Verse 16 is significant in that context. Of course, I'll have more to say about verse 17 and the, and, the, and the judgment and the curse that flows against Adam as it relates to his disobedience. It's significant. It's powerful. It's all-consuming. It impacts every dynamic and aspect of Adam's life forever and all men thereafter, as true for the woman as well. So keep this in mind as it relates to this particular issue. Now, what we also need to take away from Genesis 3.16 is this. Genesis 3.16 tells us that the fall introduced frustration into the marriage relationship. That's what you kind of come away with with a sense. In fact, even thinking about it, it might make you frustrated. Um, Contemplating it in the context of understanding what this passage means is that there's a sense of frustration, and we can see that in the way that husbands and wives relate to each other. There are millions of books written about it. There's numerous conferences, seminars, ongoing shops and classes about how to resolve the frustration. Some of you may say, I'm frustrated in my marriage. This is not what I thought it was going to be. And it's a consequence of sin. It's a consequence of not fulfilling and usurping the roles that were given by God. Now, listen, it was, it's not that a husband's authority and a wife's submission were introduced as a result of the fall. This is what many egalitarians take the position on. But rather, that this relationship was part of the created order and was now frustrated by the fall. The hierarchy that God created, that's what he intended. But now, because of the fall, that relationship has now been frustrated and changed and altered in some way. Like all things, a husband's authority and a wife's submission are subject to corruption because of sin. Yet hierarchy between the sexes comes from the creative order, not the fall. It is not something to be overcome, but something to be embraced as God's good design. As God's good design. And we have to remember that. So don't fall into the trap that so many will use to say, well, this is all here because of of the corruption and all these things, and it must not be very good. I don't want to do it that way. I, I think Eve had it right. No, Eve had it wrong, had it very, very, very wrong, and you're living under the weight and burden of it. And that's and that's certainly the issue that we see here. And so when we, when we think about that, when we think, okay, if God's creative order was such in Genesis chapter 2 that there is a right relationship between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, then when I step into 318, I need to re- be reminded of the fact that what ought to be happening and the way I ought to be living is in the context of Genesis chapter 2. This is what God designed. And I need to delight in that and have a right attitude about it and have a good heart about it. And I need to understand that I am a sinner and that the tendency for me is going to be to do what Eve did. Men, the tendency for you is going to be to do what Adam did. What did he do? He just stood back and watched. Oh, okay. Look at that. Serpent's talking to my wife. Okay. Big whoop. Didn't do a thing. That's what our temptation is to do, not to do anything. Not to do anything at all. Adam was the guardian of the garden. 
There's this image of him as, that he as even the high priest of the garden. And his responsibility was to protect its purity. The instant he saw that, he should have moved in and thrown the serpent out. That's what his obligation was. But he didn't do it. He was the protector of the garden. He was the protector of his wife as well. And he failed in both respects. And so keep that in mind. As we look at 3.18 relative to this particular issue. Now, um, what's significant then is that we look at Adam's penalty. We see that in verses 17 through 19. I'm not going to take the time to go back and reread all of it, but we read it and we can see that it was significant. It's interesting too um, what, what, God, what God says in verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Oops. That's that's an issue. Whose voice didn't he listen to? God's. God's. Men remember that too. Uh, We all need to remember that. So as a consequence of this, there is a resulting penalty. And we see what Adam's penalty is. God curses the ground because of Adam's sin. It's only by misery and hard work that it will yield food for sustaining life. The woman's punishment struck at the deepest root of her being as wife and mother. The man strikes at the innermost nerve of his life, his work, his activity, and provision for sustenance. The completeness of the judgment is significant. And finally and decisively, Adam will die and return to the ground. Eve, too, shares in Adam's death penalty. The reason for her inclusion in his judgment is that Adam is the appointed representative head of the first family. Remember, Eve was taken out of Adam. So his judgment, his condemnation, his death is attendant to her as well. That's significant. Very significant. And so he's the head. His headship is recognized by by the way in which after the fall, God called to Adam, not the woman, to respond to his summons, although the woman fell first. Notice that. Adam, where are you? Furthermore, Adam's headship is demonstrated by the way in which the couple is referred to as the man and his wife in verse 8. In biblical language and God's governmental structure for the human race, Adam, the first man, was the head of the first family and ultimately the whole human race. Paul relies upon this in Romans chapter 5. He relies upon it in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. And we see other passages that speak to that issue also. Adam's federal headship. So in summary, Genesis 1 and 2 reveal that men and women are created equally in the image of God, but are different in function and relationship roles. And the rest of the Old Testament illustrates these gender or sex-based differences in a fallen world. So consider this. The prominent leaders of the Old Testament are men. Noah, Abraham, Job, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Saul, Samuel, David, Solomon, Ezra, Nehemiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. And the list goes on. Although priestesses were common in the religious practice of neighboring nations, Israel priests were required to be male. It was not possible for a Hebrew woman to ever become a priestess. Israel had no female goddesses or priestesses, and in this way was radically different from the surrounding nations. All of of Israel's kings were male except Athaliah. Do you remember her? Wasn't she a charmer? who violently usurped the throne and killed a bunch of people to get it. 
If you want to read about that, you can look at 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 16 through chapter 11, verse 16. I think she was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, or Omri, something like that. Anyway, almost all the leading national prophets were men, and we know of no women elders in the New Testament. So, we understand from Scripture that there is a high status ascribed to the wife, and as a mother, that's praised in Proverbs 31. We know that well. The Bible says an excellent wife, who can find her? They're to be treasured as, as priceless gems. We understand that they played significant roles in other aspects, but the leadership responsibilities rested upon the men. And so significantly, we have these examples for us, and as we have this foundation of Old Testament teaching securely under us, we can then better understand what Paul's exhortations are in verse 18 and why he makes them. And so my hope is that our time in Genesis chapter 3 and 2 and 1 is helping you better understand why it is Paul wrote what he did in verse 18 and what he will write in verse 19 and the order that's established in the balance of the chapter in regards to the relationships that he speaks to. Now, I understand that there can be a frustration in marriage and that there can be problems, and we just talked about the idea that those problems are a consequence of sin. Of sin. And we also know that God is faithful and just to forgive us, that in Christ Jesus we have that forgiveness. And so if you're struggling with those issues, if that's a problem in your marriage, you can take those issues to the Lord. You live under the context of the gospel. The burden of the curse is minimized by what Christ has done for us. Perfectly obeyed, perfectly loves, perfectly submitted to the will of the Father. You have a perfect example in Jesus Christ in that way. And so you can take these things to him. But the challenge and the exhortation I give to you is to square your life up with Scripture. Ladies, if, if there is a constant battle between you and your husband over the leadership in the home and the responsibilities in the home, and there's a constant tension about that, that's something that you need to get right with God about and deal with, and it needs to be corrected. That's not biblical. That's not right. That's not proper. And husbands, likewise, if, if that tension exists, then you as the husband need to deal with it from the standpoint of your own heart and where you are, and to also deal with it in the context of the relationship that you have with your wife, and to take it to the Lord, and to address it, not to abandon it, not just to say that's just the way things are, it's never going to change. That's just fatalism. That's not gospel living in any context. And so, I want to encourage you and to exhort you, go back, remember what God has ordained, remember the mandates, remember the roles, rejoice and be happy in them, they are good, and be grateful that God has ordained these things and be mindful of how they got altered, and then rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ to rectify them and to look into them from the standpoint of doing something out of obedience and loving gratitude for what the Lord has done to go back to what God intended, as opposed to living in the context of what others may say is perhaps in their minds better. This is the best. There is nothing better. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the reminder of these important foundations. Thank you for the uh, exhortations from scripture about the right roles and responsibilities of the husband and the wife. 
Forgive us, Lord, for not living in the way that you would intended us to do in terms of our marriages. Forgive us for not fulfilling our responsibilities and roles. We are grateful that we can come to you and talk to you about these things, how good it is that you are forgiving and that you are loving and that you will sanctify and keep us. So we pray for that, Lord. Instill us with a greater sense of your good purposes for us and and help us to live in the context of, of those. We ask that you would strengthen and equip us, help us to to ignore the hiss of Satan as it relates to these matters and to trust in you and to rely upon you. You do all things perfectly good and we rejoice that we are known by you through Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. God bless you.